Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Welcome to another 21 Hats Dashboard. Every Monday, Gene Marks and I talk about the issues we think business owners should be following. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Lauren. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. Always good to have you here. Uh, Gene, you know, I kind of hate to say it, but there's really one big issue right now that I think is confronting business owners. It's kind of uh, exploded on us in the last few days, and that's Omicron. Um, You know, all of a sudden... Holiday parties are getting canceled. Sporting events are getting canceled. Offices are closing. Uh, It's starting to feel a lot like not Christmas, but March of 2020. Um, And I'm wondering what you're thinking. How, How concerned do you think business owners should be? Well, I have concerning news and then I've got good news to follow up with it. So let's... Uh, Lauren, let's talk about my Saturday, okay? Not 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 the past <laughs> Saturday, but the Saturday before that, okay? Okay. Um, my uh, my wife and I went to the uh, the Philly Pops Christmas concert, which we have been you know we've been going to like the past five or six years, and it's awesome. And uh, we went there; it was a great show. Um, of course, everybody's masked up, which doesn't make it so much fun. Um, and and of course, the orchestra is it inside <laughs> or outside? It was inside. You know, it was in the it was in the you know the Kimmel Center in Philadelphia, and the the violinists are wearing masks, but the horn section are not wearing masks. You know, so it's just all that going. Going on right, um, but it was great. And then you know, I I read, I heard from a few people that I knew that you know are affiliated with the organization, and then I I looked into it that um, they normally do thirteen shows every holiday season, but this year they were only able to do eight um, shows. And um, there's a big reason why, and and the reason why is because um, uh, there's less people coming to the shows. Uh, you know, and, and the reason why there's less people coming to the shows is because if you are, if you're an organization that's doing any type of event in the city, um, although there's no city mandate right now, there's a lot of pressure on these organizations to, to require vaccinations. So they're all being good boys and girls, and that's what they're doing. Now, these are theaters. These are even like, you know, an organization like the Philly Pops. I mean, they're a small business, you know, they're not like some giant multinational, whatever. Um, so they got to comply because that's what the that's what sort of the narrative is now 40% of the people in Pennsylvania Lauren are not vaccinated we don't have to have a discussion as to why or whether we agree with that or not but they're not vaccinated right those people 
can't go to the Philly Pops or any other theaters or you know a lot of movie theaters or a lot of events in the city of Philadelphia because they can't get in because they're not vaccinated. And the theater owners aren't thrilled about doing this, but they're doing it because that's what you know public opinion wants them to do, I guess, or the city is is really pressuring are, them to Are do you it. sure they're – I mean, did you talk to them? Are you sure they're not thrilled about it? Because, you know, th- th- there is broad support for the, the, those kinds of vaccine mandates. Well, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. No, I didn't talk to the owners of the Philly Pops. But would you be thrilled to lose uh, to, to cut down your shows from thirteen to eight when it's such the, it's your biggest money maker of the year? Certainly not. Although you know that that gets back at kind of the, the, the central discussion we've been having since the pandemic hit, which is uh, you know what what causes the economic problem? Is it the COVID or is it the restrictions? And you know a lot of analysis has shown that. People have dropped off going to events and eating in restaurants before regulations set in back when there were, were, you know, lockdowns and things like that. Certainly the unvaccinated are like unwanted. Um, and even the vaccinated people are they're afraid of getting COVID from the vac- from the unvaccinated, although. Uh, we can't. We're not scientists, so I can't tell you whether or not that's even you know a valid fear or not. But the bottom line is. Well, well is let that- me stop you there because th- that that has evolved, um, and I, I think th- th- people had a lot more confidence that that wasn't a problem uh, some time back. But th- there's you know there's there's a lot more that we don't know about, especially me about Omicron, uh, than we do know. But there seems to be some concern that the vaccines are not as effective. And uh, I mean, you can just look at the professional sports teams. You are seeing a lot of vaccinated people get breakthrough cases. You are. But then you're also seeing that those same vaccinated people that have breakthrough cases, they're, they're not being hospitalized uh, you know, the, which the, is a good the, thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, so it's, you know, there and so there's there's that that's going on that, you know, people don't know. And unfortunately, though, it is the, the businesses like like the, you know, like the Philly Pops that have to suffer. And it's not just the Philly Pops because of this unknown and this uncertainty and sort of this knee jerk hysteria about this. Um, the city of Philadelphia. Knee jerk hysteria. I mean, yeah. Yeah. You I mean, don't think it's legitimate concern? It is a concern, but here's here's what the city of Philadelphia is doing, and and really, it's 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 just the city of Philadelphia. I think New York has got their own restrictions, but but just talk about Philly. Starting January third, restaurants are not allowed to serve customers unless they're vaccinated, so they're, they're just not allowed to do that. So think about it, Lauren. Like you're running a restaurant in Philly, um, you know, a good part of your revenue is people coming in from the suburbs that, you know, dine in in your restaurants as well as local residents. And not only are you short-staffed and dealing with, you know, price increases and all of those kinds of challenges, but now you've got to turn customers away unless they're vaccinated. And let's, again, going back to 40% of the people in Pennsylvania alone are not vaccinated. These are all the people in the suburbs. If you're not vaccinated, again, for whatever reason, um, you know, do you, are you going to go into this? You're not allowed to eat out in the restaurants. You can't go to the theaters. 
you got to wear masks everywhere indoors in the city. So because of all of these restrictions, and again, you know, we're still trying to figure out whether or not this is these restrictions are even needed. You know, with this whole Omicron variant, you know, what I'm told is that the impacts of it are are significantly less than the Delta variant. Not only that, but I'm also reading that we're just literally days away from these new antiviral drugs, of which hundreds of millions have already been produced from Merck and from Pfizer, um, where if you do test positive for COVID, you take this course of drugs like the Tamiflu, and apparently it, it, it reduces your chance of going into a hospital by over 90%. So you had all this just on the cusp. Um, you've got the Omicron variant that, again, no one really knows how you know how much of a problem it is. So what? What the well, we do know it's very transmissible. So it's more transmissible, but again, you know what the effect of it is. Then you've got the people that are impacted the most are the unvaccinated, which again, the unvaccinated are those are the decisions that they're making. Um, But caught in the middle are the small businesses. I guess is my point. Caught in the middle are the businesses that you know the restaurants in Philadelphia, the theater owners in Philadelphia, the gyms, the service providers, because of all of this reaction to this. Um, which I think is, uh, to me, I think it's, it's, it is really just this sort of excessive reaction right away. Um, the people that are paying the price of it are the small businesses in this city. Now, I know- well, Let me ask you this, York- Gene. Hey, you're, you're raising the concern, and obviously it's a legitimate one, uh, that these businesses are, are going to be hurt because unvaccinated customers will not be able to uh, partake. Uh, and, and clearly, whatever one agrees on or disagrees on, we can all feel for those business owners. That said, th- there's no perfect solution here. You flip the scenario and the same thing happens. If there is no requirement for vaccination, you surely are going to lose some customers who are vaccinated and don't want to go into that well, environment, don't I you think? I think what the solution is, and you're right, there's no perfect solution, but I think the best solution is to leave the decisions up to the business. <laughs> I think if you're running a restaurant, like many restaurants already are doing in Philadelphia, they are requiring vaccinations for their customers, but they're doing that on their own. Um, and by the way, they're advertising that. They're getting good PR about it. They come up with their own rules saying we have we have sections or outdoor seating uh, you know, or indoor seating over here for customers that aren't vaccinated. But in, a, in any case, they're making the decisions. They're not being mandated. Uh, by the government on these decisions. And and unfortunately, um, because of these mandates, you've got a lot of businesses that otherwise uh, would have had these customers come into their doors. They're, they're, they're not even going to have the customers showing up, let alone having the opportunity to turn them away. And I just think it's tough. And, I, and what I think is also going to be, um, I, my, here's my expectation, though. Um, and there's a couple of things on this. Like I said earlier, I do think that we're going to be finding out that this Omicron variant is, is nowhere near as significant as what the Delta variant is. I do think that um, with, with this new course of medications that are coming out within days, um, I think that's going to allay a lot of fears. And I think this wave itself um, of fear, and I, I'm calling it hysteria, um, I think will dissipate a little bit. And I think there's a surge People want to get the fuck out. You know, they, they want to go out. They want to, they want to, you know, they want to go to theaters. They want to be out there if they're just allowed to do so. And I think that, you know, it will, this, yeah, whole- you know, there is some evidence against that, Gene. Uh, I, I mean, y- yes, everybody wants to, but I, I read a story in the Washington Post this week, and this is irrespective of Omicron. Um, music venues are finding that 20% of the people or more uh, who've bought tickets for an event are just not showing up. And th- 
this is going back over the past couple of months, so preceding Omicron. I, you know, people do want to get out. There's, you're, you know, no question you're right about that. But, but there is some hesitation. And right now, there's a, a, a lot of unanswered questions. I think there's some people who are just thinking, you know what, let's, let's just take it careful right now and see, let's learn more and see where we are in, in a couple of weeks. Well, Lauren, that gets me to the second part of my my story about Saturday. So we finished the concert. Uh, we went out to dinner to a restaurant, uh, which was actually doing quite well Saturday night because they could still allow unvaccinated people in. Um, and then, you know what we did, Lauren? This is a very thing unlike myself and my wife. Normally, we're back on the sofa watching TV, but we weren't tired. So um, we heard that there was this this club in Philadelphia that was doing an ABBA dance party. <laughs> who can resist? So we go there on Broad Did not Street. see that coming, Gene. Did not see it coming. We get there at like 8.30, right? Empty. Nobody's there. And we're texting our kids and our kids are like, well, that's because you're there at 8.30. Nobody goes to a club at 8.30. Sure enough, by 10 o'clock at night, Lauren, I can happy to report to you that the club was packed. Wall to wall with dancers and party goers, a couple of hundred people in there sweating and singing to ABBA. We left at around one in the morning and the club was still bopping at that point at, at that part of time. So people do want to go out now. They did check your vaccination status to get in. So the people that did come did have their, you know, as your friend, Gene, I'm feeling better about this story yeah, right now. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. It was spreader event. There was no doubt about that. But there is this people people want to get out. If they're given the opportunity to get out. And those are just the vaccinated, let alone the unvaccinated. You're walking a very fine line here. I'm not sure I completely understand all, all of your uh, <laughs> opinions put together. But let's let's leave the regulatory discussion aside. Let's just talk about the realities of business. This is, you know, we've been through a tough time. You know, these last two years for businesses have been terrible. And it, it's it's looking a little bit shaky right now from a purely business perspective. Forget about the regulations. How concerned do you think businesses should be and what are you hearing from your clients? Well, first of all, I, I got to argue with you again about the whole, you know, narrative of business being terrible and, you know, it's being a bad no, year. No, I didn't say that. that. It's been a tough time you in a lot of it. ways. You but just been, said, this has been terrible. This has been a bad year. And I, I, no, I don't think I said that, but if I did, I, I take it back. You're right. Okay. So, so you know, when I look at you know this past year in business, actually for my clients across the board, it's actually been a great year for most of my clients. I mean, it has been um, you know it's been a great year of recovery. Even restaurants and merchants are, have been breathing a sigh of relief until this most recent round of mandates for those guys that are working. You know, they're in Philadelphia. B two B businesses have been doing great. Gross domestic product this quarter is estimated to be about seven percent. You know, Lauren, which is normally like two to three percent. Industrial production is up. There are more houses under construction now than since 1973. And you know how many businesses there are, small businesses in the construction industry, you can imagine. So, yeah, we're going to have our challenges this year, continuing with supply chain. We're going to have our challenges, continue with rising prices and, of course, finding labor. We always have challenges. There's never which is what I meant to be referring to. And I, I agree with everything you're saying. 
Sure. And it's never, there's never a perfect economy. I mean, even in a the, the best <laughs> growing economy, there's always, you, know, you always find the negatives, you know? Sure. But this year itself has, has been good. And I think that plays itself out. It's not what I hear anecdotally from my clients, but just this week, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce came out with their survey of, of optimism among their members. It was an expansive survey of thousands of their members and found that uh, the, the, you know, their, their confidence levels, their optimism levels were at a, a pandemic high. Um, and then the same thing with the National Federation of Independent Businesses. Now, this, this is the NFIB. This is a right-leaning organization. They can't wait for bad news from small businesses so they can turn it against, you know, the left and Biden and all that kind of stuff. Their optimism index also ticked up and are also approaching historical highs among that index. What that says to me is that small businesses have come off a year that was challenging, like every year is challenging, but look ahead into 2022. Maybe a little more than most. A little bit. Depends on the business you're in. Depends on the For region sure. where you're listening. For sure. You know, you're in Texas, you're in Florida, you're in, you know, the Midwest, you're in, you're not in California or New York City or Philadelphia. You're probably not having such a bad year, depending on the industry that you're in. Well, but wherever you are, I mean, and maybe especially in Texas or Florida, you, you are fighting labor shortages. You are dealing with inflation. There, there certainly have been challenges. Which you were fighting before COVID. You know, those are the same issues that you had. And even though you didn't have the kind of inflationary pressures that we've got this year, you still had other issues in managing your business and investment. For issues sure. And, there are always know, issues. It's always something. So, you know, I, get, I, I guess the point that I'm making is that most of my clients that I talk to and, I, the, and the, the studies that have just come out and you know, my readers and the community looking into 2022, people are so optimistic and they are optimistic that this, again, I keep using it. I know you bristle every time I do, but the hysteria that's surrounding <laughs> COVID, which will never go away, COVID, there will always be COVID. This is not going to end. But because because these variants are becoming less of a problem. And well, let's, let's any- reserve judgment on that. Well, we, okay. we want them to be less of a problem. You, you know, I mean, keep in mind. It, it it's dramatically more transmissible, I, and I, I I I don't want to be the you know the, the voice of darkness here, but I I think we need to wait and pass judgment after we know a little bit more. It's more transmissible. It, it, maybe it's less severe. Maybe fewer people are going to die. But if it's if way more people get it, then you could still have hospitals overrun, and you know a, a lot of uh, a lot of sadness and people nervous about going out. That that is one possibility for a period of time. Now, one thing that seems to be happening and seems to have happened in South Africa and to some extent in the UK is this thing burns bright really quick, but then ends pretty quickly. So whatever it is, it could be over pretty soon. Yeah, I, I actually, I, I'll jump, I'll jump on what you just said because I think that that you, you are absolutely right about about it burning bright and ending quickly because uh, it gets back to confidence. You know, when, when I look at again, you know, when I talk to my clients and they they read and see what's going on, um, you know, their attitudes is that this is a variant that is not going to last that long. Plus, they look at again, you know, the the medications are coming out, the vaccines that are available. And the people that will make their choice whether they get vaccinated or not, it's probably not going to have an impact on their business going forward. The only thing that will, um, again, is if there is a continuing narrative that COVID is going to keep people, uh, you know, locked into their homes and into their apartments. And, you know, the hope is that a lot of that will get behind us for most people. There will always be some people that are just going to be scared to death to continue on with their life. But hopefully that number will diminish significantly in 2022. And I think it will. 
well, I guess some people are more afraid of the narrative. Some people are more afraid of COVID. Uh, we're not going to settle that discussion today. Um, but uh, let me just ask you this. Well, this is our last uh, taping of the year. You're a, a metric guy. You're always looking at numbers, trying to figure out where things are headed. How are things looking for your business? How are you feeling personally, your business for next year? Okay. So first of all, I have to call into question that you use the word taping as if we're like back in 1990, actually recording this <laughs> onto like videotape, but okay. I'll, I'll let that pass for now. <laughs> um, but my, my you, business stuff heading into, I, I, I have two businesses that I, that I run. One is the CRM business and then I do a lot of speaking. Um, so first of all, my, uh, my CRM business right now, we have a, a full plate right now. And you know me, uh, Lauren, I'm always honest about uh, the ups and downs of my yep. business. But uh, right now, our chargeable hours are up and looking to be up at least for the first quarter of 2022. So I'm feeling very good about that. People are investing in CRM systems and they need help. On the speaking side, um, my backlog is bigger um, than what I've ever had. I've got about like 15 or 20 right now booked in you know, speaking gigs. And usually it's half that amount. Um, and then, Are they yeah, all in Florida always, and Texas? Yeah. All, frankly, yeah. A lot in Vegas, Florida, <laughs> Texas. Yeah, you, you got it. Okay. But the, the good news is, the good news is, is that these are, again, these are business associations, as you know, that I speak to. Um, and these are industry groups. And they are, they got their conferences booked and they are getting people, you know, people are coming to these conferences, which means that the businesses that aren't you know, cowering down in New York or Philly or San Francisco, the rest of the businesses in this country, right? Uh, you know, those owners are actually getting on planes and going to their conferences and going out and meeting with their customers and moving on with business, which is, I think, why we saw gross domestic product. Uh, we'll see increase the way that people are predicting it's going to increase. So um, my business is good. And and I'm 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 happy to say so are most of my clients and um, I'm very optimistic heading into 2022. I'm glad to hear that. Gene Marks is a CPA who writes weekly on small business for The Guardian, The Hill, The Philadelphia Inquirer, The Washington Times, Forbes, and Entrepreneur. You can also hear him on ABC Radio's Eye on the World with John Batchelor. Gene hosts two popular small business podcasts with Paychex Corporation and The Hartford. Thank you, Gene. Always great speaking with you. Love speaking with you, Lauren. We'll see you next year. Yeah, absolutely. See you next year. Thanks, Gene. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Hello and welcome to the Essential Football Podcast. Great to have you with us as we assess a disrupted yet very entertaining weekend of Premier League action. With fixtures heavily hit by COVID, it was over to the few games which did go ahead to put on a show and Tottenham and Liverpool definitely got the memo. They produced one of the games of the season in a thrilling and controversial draw in North London. It was the perfect Super Sunday for leaders Manchester City, who not only saw their closest challenges drop points, but also set a new top flight record for wins in a calendar year as they enter Christmas with a three-point lead 
lead at the top of the table. And just the one fixture, but the five goals on Saturday as Arsenal strengthened their grip on a top four spot with victory at Leeds. So despite only four games having taken place this weekend, still so much to discuss. And joining me, Alice Piper, to do just that is Sky Sports reporter Ben Ransom. Ben, did the football get you feeling festive? Oh, it was fantastic this weekend. And I just want to say huge credit to the Premier League and all the Premier League clubs that got those games on because, well, I mean, they were great games, don't get me wrong, but when suddenly a week I was stood outside of the likes of Manchester United and Manchester City talking about the potential for COVID postponements and indeed COVID postponements and the, the kind of bleak emerging picture from around the Premier League, to see those games go on as they did, to see the kind of the way all the players and stuff threw themselves into it because they were great performances around. Um, the fans obviously were, were superb throughout, even Leeds fans when they were getting tonked again. Um, so look, it was, I think it was, yeah, it really did give me a lift after what was starting to feel like quite a bleak week. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it must be a tricky situation to navigate as well, Ben, as you say there. Well said. And um, we're also joined by uh, Sky Sports senior digital football journalist, Gerard Brand. Gerard, how was your weekend? Yeah, unexpectedly exciting with those um, with those games, particularly obviously Sunday, but also also Saturday was a fair bit of a, a fair bit of action, a bit more at Leeds goal than than they would have liked. But yeah, I felt like it was much needed, as Ben said. It, I felt like on Saturday morning when the Villa game was called off, well Saturday afternoon actually, when people are on their way to the game, I thought when that was called off, I thought, oh no, here we go again. I don't think we'll, we we might not see a Premier League game this weekend, but. It was salvage, really, and that was, I think it was really needed for, for football fans. And, and let's just, you know, I know we've come on to it later in the show, but, but fingers crossed we get as many games as we can over the festive period because, to me, that's what the festive period is. It's, uh, it's a day after day of football. Oh, yeah, absolutely is. So so let's start with that Christmas cracker then at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Liverpool and Spurs serving up one of the most electrifying Premier League games in recent years. The two-all draw sees Jurgen Klopp's side drop three points behind leaders City. A brilliant game for the neutral, though. Four goals, so many chances, some penalty shouts, a red card given, a red card not given. Uh, so many talking points in this game. So much goal mouth action as well. 28 attempts on goal between the sides. Gerard, Gary Neville said it was one of the best he'd ever seen. You covered the game for Sky. Was it one of the best you'd ever seen too, or at least the best of the season, I guess? Yeah, I, I mean, from minute one where Andy Robertson heads just wide to minute 94, there was probably a five-minute lull and that was it. The rest was just 100 miles an hour, drama, quality attacking football, some last-ditch defending, some some bad defending, some questionable decisions. It was just so enjoyable and and to answer your question, I'm, I'm, if I'm thinking about some of the games I've covered over the last five years or so, you know, we've seen plenty of higher scoring games. We've seen plenty of better goals. But I can't remember a game this entertaining where both sides actually could have scored six or seven times. And, and the game went, went, went to and fro from side to side so often. It was like, it was like both defences played on the edge of their centre circle in, in their half. It was... You know, the ball in behind was just constantly on for both sides. And they, it was just a really fully committed contest that had drama at the end. England, people saying the England captain should have been sent off. Andy Robertson then getting sent off. What on earth's going on with VAR at the moment? And, and yeah, it was just brilliant. And uh, yeah, I think Liverpool contributed and, and chose to play that way as they have this season. And it's making for, for really exciting games. And yeah, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. A pleasure to cover. 
And uh, for me, the game of the season so far, without a doubt. Yeah, so much drama. Um, Ben, Spurs really capitalised on Liverpool's high line, didn't they? I mean, was it encouraging signs for them in the top four race, perhaps? Because I guess maybe their performance is a measure of the progress Spurs have made, given this was one of, if not the toughest tests they faced under Antonio Conte so far. I think so. I think there's a lot to be positive about for Spurs fans. Certainly, you know, if you went on Twitter during the game, as we all do now, to follow matches and see how various supporters groups and certainly supporters that we know are following their respective teams, there was a lot of positivity around Tottenham. And you can see why. And really, on chances, they should have won that game, shouldn't they? Um, They missed so many. And not just missed, they missed big chances, particularly big players, Kane and Son, players who last year everything they touched turned to goals. Well, not quite been the same this year, has it? But the fact they were getting those chances and playing better again as a partnership was encouraging. I think they, in some ways, it was a slightly perfect storm in that obviously without Virgil van Dijk, Liverpool, it's quite clear and not quite the same defensive uh, kind of uh, juggernaut, I guess, because they're so good with him. He mops up so much, particularly those balls behind, which allows the fullbacks to to move on. And also, Liverpool were severely weakened, weren't they, in the middle of midfield? Again, without a Fabinho or even a Henderson, who's very smart at just recognising when danger might be there. Um, it, it was a slightly depleted Liverpool side. But look, that's probably a bit unfair because Tottenham also played very well. I thought their structure looked good. I think that it's been it had been 14 days since their last game. Now, I know a lot of that was disrupted by COVID. Of course it was. Um, but it will have given Conte, by the looks of it, some time to work with the players on the training pitch. I've been stood outside of Manchester United, haven't I, for the last three, four weeks. And all we've been talking about is Rangnick having a handful of sessions to talk to his players and get that system across. Well, Conte has had seemingly a bit more time on the training pitch with some players. As I say, people would have been in and out but it looked quite good. And I think the 3-5-2 seems to kind of suit them. I think that, you know, Son and Kane as a partnership, I think is probably a bit more, for me, a bit more exciting at this stage than maybe a 3-4-3. Because I think that you're always trying to then shoehorn in a third player into that front. And I don't know if you need to. And actually, I want to just give a shout out to Daly Alley as well, because I thought that he's had so many um, false dawns on the new manager, so many final chances. I heard Jamie Carragher talking about it again. But... I thought offensively, he showed glimpses of that quality which he brings. And his greatest quality is in and around the box in those chances, being really relaxed, almost slowing time down as defenders fall all over the place, letting the goalkeeper dive, doing whatever, and then just picking the right pass. And he was really unlucky, actually, with this shot. I mean, I think the commentary team were a bit harsh, weren't they, initially. It was a really good save, and he hit it really well. It's going right in the corner. You can't ask for any more than that in such a big game. So hopefully for him, he finds a role because... He did also, he was guilty of giving the ball away a couple of times in dangerous areas, which is, I suppose, where other managers have looked at him and thought, I can't rely on you in central midfield. But maybe in that kind of more advanced number 10 role, there is still a role at Tottenham. And if they can, then it's like a fantastic new signing, isn't it? Yeah, it would be. I mean, Carragher called it a last chance saloon for Deli Alley. I mean, we, we forget sometimes, or certainly I forget, he's still only 25. Gerard, would you, would you agree with Carragher there? Yeah, I, I, I wonder what, what Deli Ali is thinking now for his future. I, 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 this is given, I think with the depleted squad, I think it's given, it's given him a bit of a, a, a bit of a chance. Something this just needs to go for him in the next few weeks. Some, I think he needs a bit of luck. I think he need you know, confidence is everything for a player. And, and Ben's right. When I first saw the chance yesterday, I thought oh, he's, he's missed a sitter there, but yeah, the keeper gets a slice of touches and, and it might be going in. And I think you just need, 
uh, just luck just wasn't going his way. And I think you need that when you're a player who's sort of who's struggled as much as as, as Deli Ali has in the last couple of years. But maybe even a low, it could be like a Jesse Lingard situation where a loan spell away for six months could 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 really help him, as we say. But something he just needs to get lucky in the next few weeks for me. For me, for me, Deli Ali, because it's clear that luck hasn't not been on his side so far this season. And on that loan move, look, I mean, there's one club who, in a matter of days, are going to be trying to loan and buy the whole of the world. And I think when we, you know, whenever I've spoken to any of my mates over a pint about kind of the Newcastle project and what they might do, the likes of Deli Ali and Jesse Lingard always come up because they seem to be gettable loans, and it would seem to be players that would improve upon what Newcastle have. So. Look, a loan move for the rest of the season, I think, is a real possibility. Um, and there is a club, I'm sure, who will be looking at players like Deli Ali. And then all it takes, as Gerard says, a bit of confidence. And there were glimpses of it yesterday, which I think is encouraging, because in previous performances from Deli Ali, you haven't even seen the glimpses. But there was a bit more, I think, to build on yesterday. And hopefully for him, you're right, Alice, he is so young. He's still got so much football of his career to play. You just want him to play. And players who go through sticky situations can often play themselves back into form. Yeah, very promising signs then. Um, a lot of praise too for Harry Winks, Gerard. Yeah, he played, he sort of went about his job really well on on, on Sunday. And, and I wouldn't say he was sort of the unsung hero, but it, he was, he, how do I say this? He wasn't really involved in the huge any few sort of flashpoints in the game, but he ticked it over really well and physically as well. He got really involved, and 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 perhaps that's not something you sort of you attribute to Harry Winks is 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 getting himself about physically. But yeah, I thought he was he, he was really nice. He connected, play really well, and and what what he did was get Spurs going as soon as they won the ball deep because when Liverpool are sitting that high, they're relying on you know they're just relying on the pace of of, of Matip to get back and. And Canate to get back, he just stuck it in fantastic areas for Son and Kane. So he's another player. You know, there's plenty of players. There's probably a, a dozen players at Spurs. Are you thinking this is a crossroads under Conte for them? And and he's definitely one of them. One of them that that isn't at a crossroads, but will be very happy after that performance is Harry Kane. You've both mentioned him. It was his first home goal in the league this season. That's in 788 minutes of play. Ben, how much did he need that goal? Oh, I mean, it was hugely important for him, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's not just that it's about this season. It's the first home goal in front of those home fans in the Premier League since all that talk of him leaving. Yeah. And all the talk for most of the season's been, is he fully committed? Like, what's up with Harry Kane? Is he sulking, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I think he's he showed yesterday that he kind of is happy being there again. He seemed a lot happier and he seemed like he was a bit more confident about some of the opportunities you know you saw many occasions when he was arm up trying to get into the box really wanting to get on the end of a chance because he felt there were goals for him and that's a sign of a player who wants the board is confident um so look I think that was that was really encouraging for him and for Tottenham because they need him don't they I mean Conte needs a big central striker there's been all this talk about whether they'll, they'll go into the market to try and break the bank to bring in a striker well Kane is one of the best in the world on his day. Of course he is. He's proved that in the last, well, in this calendar year, he's been excellent, hasn't he? So, um, yeah, I think that was really encouraging for him. Uh, and I think that you saw kind of his reaction after the, the game as well and how important a moment it was, I think, in, that, in the season and for Tottenham too. 
Yeah, he looked and sounded fairly relieved. Um, but Gerard, should he have seen red for that tackle on Andrew Robertson? I mean, after the game, Kane said it wasn't a red card. I thought it was a strong tackle, but I also thought I got the ball. He even said Robertson had said to him, you just caught my foot. I didn't think it was a foul. I think in this day and age, it's a red. You know, Clock would agree. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, Kane's going to say it was just a tough foul. Ten years ago, that's not a red. We're not even, you know, we're not even discussing it ten years ago. And that's the state that, football officiating has actually got itself into. They've set the bar so low on VAR now. They've gone from one extreme, which was, you know, toenails, armpits, whatever. And now they've watched Euro 2020. They've seen it it operate really smoothly. Uh, But we must not forget that there were more officials on each game there. I think they had twice the number of officials. And they thought, right, we we can implement this. We can go a bit quicker. We can... We can, you know, fans don't want us to look at to, to look at everything. And to an extent, they don't, but they've gone way too far the other way. And they need to find a middle ground because that in this day and age was a red card. And there were several just very confusing decisions over the last two and three weeks in particular. And and I think I think they need to have a think about how they're implementing this because I actually think the standard of refereeing in this country is quite good. But the implementation of the rules and the implementation of VAR has been has been has been pretty poor. And I think this might be the first time we've got into VAR on this podcast for quite a while or ever. <laughs> I know I know our former host Jasper used to ban the talk of it. <laughs> Fair I, enough. Yeah, I, I'm I'm passionate about this, and I don't I don't think it's being implemented correctly. And uh, yeah, I think that was a red card yesterday. Well, Klopp wasn't very happy with Paul Tierney. He even went as far as to say, you know, I really have no idea what his problem is with me. Klopp understood Robertson's later sending off. But, you know, you can kind of understand why he feels aggrieved here, can't you, Ben? Because VAR instructed Tierney to review Robertson's challenge, but not the earlier challenge from Kane. And and Klopp couldn't understand why there wasn't any intervention there. Yeah, I, love, I, I also struggle to understand why there wasn't any intervention. The whole point of VAR, surely, is that he gets to look at that again, isn't it? I mean, I know they're trying to speed it up, So, but the cane tackle looked bad. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, there's the whole historical um, situation about England captains not being sent off, and we think back to a few Alan Shearer ones back in the day, don't we? Um, but, I mean... I, I just sit here as a fan and I was a fan over this weekend just watching the games because I was so excited to see them and I just think it was a red. And I, I don't know why I didn't look at it. And also, I, I also don't get why on some things, like, yes, okay, it might be on this case, right? So the VARs looked at it and thought, well, I can't think the referee's got it completely wrong or, you know, there's not enough to overturn it. But even on those decisions where it is borderline, I still don't think there's any harm in going to look at the screen and still sticking with your decision. It shouldn't be automatic and it is, isn't it? It's the Bosnia, go and look at the screen, which means that you have to basically overturn your decision. That shouldn't be automatic either. It should be there to help the referee. And I think on that, in that case, in that incident specifically, the referee needed some help. In the same way, I mean, we saw the Xhaka one, didn't we? I know we'll get on to Arsenal Leeds um, a bit later, but the Xhaka one was also awful. He stands over the wall. Yes, it's clumsy, but he goes in hard. He goes over the ball and he stamps on someone's ankle. And if you're talking about barometers, it's kind of like, is it out of control? Could he cause the opponent harm? You know, that kind of thing. You, you add them up. And that one, again, was awful. And yet, it was it was allowed to go on. So, I, yeah, I agree with Gerard. The consistency is poor, especially as a week or two ago, we were talking about penalties that were given for nothing. And then this week, suddenly, 
decisions aren't being made. So yeah, implementation, whether the VAR were having their own internal Christmas party this weekend. I, <laughs> I love that. But yeah, consistency, the key word there, as you say. But but as for Liverpool, we've talked about it a little bit. Blistering an attack as they were as open in defence. We often hear it said how, you know, attack wins your games, defence wins your titles. With that in mind, Gerard, can you win a title like that you know the way that Liverpool are playing right now especially given Man City's controlled machine-like performances of late I don't think they can I've covered Liverpool maybe a dozen times this season and in every single game they've offered the opponent at least four or five good chances and they don't concede many shots per se that you know they're, they're second second fewest in the Premier League for that behind Man City but the quality of the chances I feel they concede are quite high and I wonder if it will be their downfall in the title race. City are favourites, as you say, them they're, they're like a machine. They barely come out of third gear sometimes, and they, they've got the best defensive record again in the Premier League. Don't get me wrong, Liverpool are the, are the best team to watch because it's always a good game. It's always a brilliant game. But their style this season in particular is, is just unapologetically risky, I think, sometimes. And... They've actually reverted to the Liverpool of, of Klopp's second or third season where they were scoring a lot, conceding quite a few too. And, and people will point to the title win in 2020, but many forget that that Liverpool side were very conventional at times. And, and I, I'm not sure they've found that style of play consistently since then. And, and if this is going to be a 90-plus point season, if City are going to hit 90-odd points... Liverpool are going to have many more games like Sunday, and I I don't know if they'll reach if they'll reach that tally with that style. To be honest, Ben, do you agree? Um, I think they young. I think they should stick to their guns. Actually, I think that they um, this for the whole season, really, barring the weekend, they've blown teams away with that style, haven't they? Um, they've proved too much, and I just I think this goes down to personnel. I, I mentioned it earlier about Van Dijk, but actually, the midfield, central midfield three as well. Um, that allowed Tottenham to have a foothold in the game, whereas they they perhaps wouldn't have done previously. And and Salah was kind of because of that start of a little bit of service. Um, whereas he, you know, in my opinion, is the best player in the world this season so far. And up until this point, he's he's pretty much returned a goal or an assist in every game, hasn't he? Because he's just been so good, and he didn't really have many chances. Jota's header was fantastic, um, but look, I, yeah, I, I think they will outscore most teams. The challenge will come against, you know, in these kind of gung-ho games, I suppose. But look, I, I've said it on the pod many times, and I know we're going to talk about title race in a bit and favourites and the like, but I've said it, I don't think with AFCON, assuming it goes ahead, Liverpool can win anyway, because I think if you take out Salah and Mane in the same way you take out any of the top team's best attacking players for that period, I just... I personally don't see how they're able to to match someone like Manchester City. Yeah, very good point. A very difficult task ahead for them. But you're right, we are going to talk about the title race because Man City now three points clear at the top of the table after an eighth consecutive win as they thrashed second from bottom Newcastle 4-0. Ben, just the 11 goals in two games for Man City. It's now eight straight league wins. Gary Neville said that they're like no other team in Europe. Did Newcastle ever really stand a chance against them? Well, not after they gave away that first goal. No, I mean, that was awful. Uh, was I was watching that just thinking, is this Sunday league? Like, well, what are you doing? You're playing the best team in, in Europe, possibly. Um, yeah, I, I agree with all of that. They're, they're playing fantastic football, Manchester City again. And um, 
I think they've gone on to another level in the last few weeks. And it, it coincides, I suppose, with what we saw from them last year, didn't it, when they went on that incredible 21-match winning run. That was kind of over the, the kind of Christmas period into the new year. This is a period when Pep knows the players are in tune with what he wants. If he's made any tactical tweaks in the summer and into the new season, they understand them. They're all up to fitness and form, and they are dangerous, aren't they? I mean, they have put two teams to the sword, admittedly, who are very much struggling. But it's that ruthlessness which has become kind of synonymous with City's great sides. When they've won the titles, they have blown teams away like this. There is There was not a chance that Newcastle were going to get anything. And the same way, there was not a chance Leeds were going to get anything because City wouldn't allow it. I've been so impressed by them. Um, this kind of the year, I know some of the stats were spoken about over the weekend. 34th league win. That's a new record in the top flight. 106 Premier League goals in the calendar year. That's their most in a top flight season. So they are scoring. They are winning. They've got momentum. And that's despite the fact they didn't sign a striker. So I think that's pretty worrying for the rest of the league right now. Yeah, a very scary proposition. And they didn't need Harry Kane either, as you say there, Ben. Um, but but you mentioned that unbeaten run. Um, it was a year ago that City started on that. Are they on track here for something similar, Gerard? Yeah, I see them. I see them as as definitely title favourites. And and the thing is with City is, as you say, they can just they can just go on 10, 12, 14, 15, 16 game winning runs without without causing much of a fuss. I've said this about City before. They go under the radar a lot. That, that seems bizarre to say about a, a side that have, have, have won four out of the five, four out of the last five titles. But they go about their business sort of under the radar. I think I think, I think people. People sort of they don't forget about City, but they just, as we've said before, they're so machine-like that they just they just dismantle teams so easily. And it's just, oh, City have won again. City have won again. There's not much else to it. And and I see them, I see them going on a long winning run at some point or a beating run at some point in the season. And for me, I, I I do think that they're they're definitely favourites for this. And and we've seen with Chelsea dropping points, and I think Liverpool will drop more points. And I, I don't really see where City will. There's so much talent in just about every position. I mean, a word on Jao Cancelo. His goal was a, a thing of beauty, wasn't it? From a player that's just getting better and better under Pep Guardiola in that unique fullback position, Ben. I mean, the fact that he's played half his games, or actually played more than half at left back, and then he's played slotted in at right back. Uh, he, he's so good, isn't he? He creates chances. Every week, he, I think it was his first goal from 38 shots though or something. But he's <laughs> shooting, he's getting forward and what a, what a finish. I mean, he's absolutely smashed that. And that is a player full of confidence. And that's a player who took a little bit of time to settle. He had to understand a very complex role, not one that he would have grown up playing. Guardiola's quite demanding of his players tactically. And he, we see and we talk about every week kind of the... Um, the unique style and system that some of the players have to slot into. Well, he's understood it, and now he's the the best exponent of it. You know, across um, Europe, probably Philip Lahm's the only one who's been similar for for Pep, I suppose, that's played in all these different roles, and he's been fantastic. And what a weapon to have! He's played so many matches as well in terms of minutes. He's played a lot. He's had to, and he's, he he just seems to be enjoying every second. So, what a talent he's coming into form, and I think. Talking about the Tartar race, the thing that's ominous for the rest of the Premier League for me is that Guardiola came out after that Newcastle game and he started criticising a bit of the performance in the first half. <laughs> now, he does that 
when he knows his team are playing well, yeah. but he also knows that this is their moment. They can absolutely drive on to that next level. He hates the idea of complacency. And we saw it in that winning run last year. It's the same. Straight in their ears, you can get even better. And the players, when you're confident, the idea of pushing yourself to get better is quite an ominous one for the rest of the Premier League, isn't it? They look so good and they can get better as well. KDB's had COVID, he's back, he's getting fit. He's hardly played really this season. What a player to be able to bring in relatively fresh for the second half of the campaign. Sterling, brilliant in the summer for England. Struggled at the end of last season and the start of this season with Guardiola. He's beginning to win him round and he, he's rediscovered that form. They've got so many options across that front line. It's just, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really encouraged for City and for City fans as to what they might achieve now, because to me, they look unstoppable at the moment. They do. With, with all that in mind then, how much, Gerald, will they be looking around them and seeing Liverpool and Chelsea dropping points and that's spurring them on? Or is it a case of they're just so focused, they won't actually really be paying too much attention to that anyway? I think they're focused. I think City are like this because they, they're in this position every, every year. Uh, I think Pep's mastered the psychology of the City team in terms of having them focus on themselves. And of, of course, other results impact. They can't not impact, but I think he's reduced it to a minimum. And I think that's really important. He's become a master at that. And I don't think it's just lip service when he says to us, we're not thinking about others. I, I do I do believe that although they, there might be somewhere in their mind, it's a very small part of it. Yeah, and scary to think they've got another level on from that win at Newcastle. But let's turn to Chelsea now. Thomas Tuchel has demanded answers from the Premier League after they turned down Chelsea's request for their game at Wolves to be postponed. Chelsea, we know, are dealing with you know a number of COVID cases within their squad. They lost more points and more ground in the title race with a goalless draw at Molyneux. Gerard, so, so more points dropped for Chelsea. They've now taken only half the points available from their last six, nine out of 18, in case you're wondering. Um, you, you never, if I remember rightly, were, were wholly convinced by their title credentials, were you? No, I don't think so. They, they weren't at it on Sunday. And what was what was surprising was actually their lack of efforts on goal, just two shots where they've been averaging, averaging 11 per game this season. I think one of the problems is, is a bit of a lack of consistency in their starting 11 recently and, and that's obviously been down to injury and COVID, but also because of the options they have. And, and the thing is with options is that on one hand, it, it keeps players on their toes, it's squad depth for when they're in European competition, etc. But they've made 60 starting 11 changes this season. It's it's the most by a distance in the Premier League. It's 11 more than fantasy football Pep Guardiola and and 20, 20 more than Liverpool. And, and I think... I think Chelsea are firmly the third best team in the Premier League. Uh, I think they're in an island on their own in that regard. And that's pretty much evident in all their attacking and defensive stats. And I don't see them being drawn into a top four battle, to be honest. But 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 Tuchel may need to find some personnel consistency when all of this settles down. Because I, I think that that's maybe hampered them recently. I, I, I still don't know what their best 11 is. Um, and... They've just been, not been quite at it yesterday and, and listening to Tuchel after the game, he was so frustrated with how they played and he has been for the last, for the last, well, the, the draw against Everton and the draw against Man United. Just why is it not happening for us? Why is it not happening? And and yeah, I think they're, I think they're a great team, but I just think there are two, te- there are two teams in this league that are, that are, that are much better than them. 
Yeah, and as you say there, you know, Tuchel, right to be frustrated. He's very frustrated in the way he comes across in his post-match at the minute because you can understand, you know, after 10 games, Chelsea were five points clear of City, another eight games further into the season. They're now six points behind them. Ben, are we in danger here of a three-way title race dropping down to a two-way title race? Yeah, I hate doing this, but I have to say Gerrard's been proved right because at the start of the season... (laughs) Finally! I know, it's it's a horrible one to have to say. Um, At the start of the season, we had this exact chat. We both went, you know, we both kind of uh, butted heads over the fact that I thought Chelsea were going to win the title. My reasoning was that they would build on last year and that Lukaku would score the goals that Werner spurns the chances for last year. And that would be enough because I thought they looked solid and I thought that a striker was what they were missing. But it's been borne out, hasn't it? For whatever reason, Tuchel's not been able to get that consistency of selection. And he's, you know, he has been denied Lukaku being fit for a big chunk. Like, I mean, so there is a, a mitigating factor. But the difference is other teams, you know, I was talking about City losing De Bruyne for a big chunk of the season. And yet they just slot someone else in seamlessly. Bernardo Silva steps up and becomes one of the best players in the Premier League again. Um Chelsea have not had that. They've not had someone who's been able to step up and do exactly that in that role. And they just don't quite have that. You know, the Wolves game is an, is, is, is the exact case in point because Wolves went to Man City uh, and played that game, tried to frustrate them, almost did. But City found a way, albeit a soft way of doing it. But they, they managed to, to get over the line. Chelsea banged on the door, frustrated. They dropped points. And that's where I think City really are the standout team. And I think that they are the team to beat. And I think it is worrying for Chelsea because... Tuchel's sounding frustrated. He's bemoaning a lack of luck and that kind of thing. Well, they've got to make their luck in some ways. He's got to he's got to do something as the his job as the manager is in these runs, not to just look at the heavens and kind of wonder why it's not going for you. Is to think, okay, I've got to do something about it. And that's I think where Guardiola certainly always has proved he's able to do something. And actually, to be fair, Klopp he he quite often does the same thing. So that's this is the big challenge. And yeah, the two standout teams are the two standout attacking teams. Manchester City and Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Interesting points. And yeah, as you say, you make your own luck there. Um, Gerard, almost at the halfway stage, your pick for the title then, I think you've made it fairly clear, but let's just reiterate it. Yeah, definitely City. It was City at the start of the season. It's City now. Yeah, City. City, they're just going to win it, aren't they? They're gonna ben, win. how can you, can you argue with that at all? No, I've already had to lay down on my sword and say that I think that, yes, um, Gerald's right. It's hard. I've said it twice now. I feel a bit <laughs> ill. Um, it must be all the mulled wine I had for breakfast. Look, no, I think City, absolutely. Um, I did wonder, given the whole um, striker thing, because that was, to me, the missing piece of making City the best team in the world. Okay. And the fact that Guardiola has once again proved that he knows more about football than me. Uh, it's no surprise. Um, but it's also just a testament to how good a manager he is. I mean, look, I obviously get to speak to him quite a lot. I occasionally get to sit down with him and, and talk, you know, have 10 minutes of, of his time. And he is, uh, he's a remarkable character. Um, he has proved how incredible he is at building football teams and winning titles. And I don't think that you can ever, you know, you can't doubt him. And I think he's, he's again, in spite of the fact they didn't get the striker, that he, the, the, those above him thought that City needed to be that final piece. He's managed to create a system and a style and a, and a confidence um, and a rhythm amongst this team that's just, yeah, I think relentless. And I think they will, this is where they know 
all their opponents are weakened and they will continue just to land those punches and get over the line because they've done it so many times before. Yep, doubt Pep at your peril. So, um, Ben, you've just agreed with Gerard twice there. I think we all need to sit down. Let's take a break. Uh, (laughs) Next up, we're talking Arsenal's impressive win at Leeds and is a circuit break needed in the Premier League? Stay with us. Welcome back. Now to the only Premier League game that went ahead on Saturday and injury hit Leeds will be in 4-1 by Arsenal, who spend Christmas in fourth. Um, Ben, another impressive win then for Arsenal. Three straight, very convincing victories. Do you think maybe now they have to be taken seriously as Champions League contenders? I mean, who'd have thought I'd be asking you that after the first few games? At the end of August, they were bottom after the first three games of the season. But I guess in their defence, that was a long time ago. Yes, um, I think they're, they're definitely contenders, aren't they? Because that fourth spot is completely up for grabs. West Ham started the season supremely, but obviously uh, the quality that some of the other teams, Arsenal and even Tottenham are showing, uh, and you know Manchester United will be there and thereabouts as well. I think that, that battle for fourth is, is fascinating, actually. And yeah, credit to Arsenal of late because they've looked a slightly different side, haven't they? They've looked like they are have a bit more consistency of performance. And they started by, again, getting back to what led them to that FA Cup win, sorting out the defence. They stopped conceding goals. When they bought Ramsdale, we all thought, oh, that's that's an odd one. Uh, He wasn't particularly great for Sheffield United. And actually, he has cemented his place. He's looked good. He's made fantastic point-blank saves. And he's very good with his feet, which is clearly something that Guardiola... Sorry, Arteta. The reason I say Guardiola, I'll come on to. That's obviously a reason Arteta wanted him there. Now, the reason I was thinking about Guardiola, the slip was because I was thinking back to when Pep came into Man City and one of the first things he thought was, Joe Hart, I'm sorry, you're not for me. I'm bringing in a keeper who can play with the ball at his feet. Now, it didn't quite work with Claudio Bravo, but in Edison, they found something that's essential to that style of play. Arteta clearly wanted that. Again, the recruitment, um, a lot of... People, pundits, uh, reporters and the like looked at Arsenal's summer of spending and thought, well, what have they done here? Well, actually, it's beginning to become clear, isn't it? Because now they've got a fit Gabriel. They've paired him with Ben White. They look much better as a defensive partnership. Um, the fullbacks look good. They've suddenly got a bit of a shield when parties fit, play alongside, uh, you know, whoever. Um, so they're building a shape, which I think Arteta wants in the image that he wants the team to play. And then up front, the young players have come on again, haven't they? Martinelli, Smith-Rowe, Saka, they look fantastic. Um, And every game they play, they get a little bit better. And I think that's the exciting thing, I suppose, for Arsenal fans, is that they can actually get excited for the first time in a long time about a group of players. Yeah, completely. But Ben, you never have to justify having Guardiola on your mind. (laughs) Gerard, we we saw two really clinical finishes from Martinelli. I mean, 20 years old, three goals in two games. He's had five straight stars. Do Arsenal really need a forward in January or can we add them to the list of don't need a forward with Man City? Well, I think I was at the Emirates on Wednesday when he scored against West Ham as well. And he, he he took both goals on Saturday really well. I think, I think Lacazette's style of play helps him alongside him. So, when we think towards next season and, and Arsenal's transfer plans, there's a problem there for Arsenal in terms of whether Lacazette stays or goes. His contract is up in the summer. He'll be 31. I don't think Arsenal are going to give him a three-year deal. And I'm not sure Lacazette will take a one-year deal because this is probably his last chance to get a, a, a long-term deal, a three-year deal on the continent somewhere. So 
So that that probably does leave Arsenal with the need to get a striker. I, I also think if you're a top four team, as Arsenal want to be, I, I don't know if pinning all your hopes on, on a 20-year-old is, is the way to go. They have to be seriously special. And, and that's not to say he won't become special at one point, but Martinelli, I think, is someone who Arsenal will, will look to keep developing rather than place all their eggs into, into that basket. Listen, he looks bright, he looks confident, vibrant at the moment. And, and as Arteta said in the week, he's added, he's added real gears to his game, which is important in, in this day and age. So, but Arsenal in general, in general, I've got the fans back on side, really, with this vibrant, youthful side. And, and Arteta spoke about that on Wednesday in quite some depth, that it's so important with what they're doing that the fans are with them because the fans haven't been convinced so often over the last, well, how long now? 10 years. I was going to say since Wenger, but it was, Before. you know, the last four years of his of his time, four or five years of his time, longer than that. The fans are sort of doing and throwing. So it's really important there on side. And listen, these young players, and in particular Martinelli, really help that because when, you, when you're watching your team and you've got these youthful players skipping down the wing and scoring goals, it's just, it, it really, really does help. Yeah, on that, um, you know, Martinelli, Saka and Smithrow all scored in that game. And that was the first time in a single Premier League match Arsenal have had three different goal scorers aged 21 or younger. So hugely positive signs for the future. But on Martinelli, Ben, is his form, I guess, like kind of helping to soften the blower of the Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang situation? I think he's more suited to that role. I mean, we quite often saw Aubameyang, didn't we? Um certainly last year, kind of pushed out onto the kind of left left forward, inside forward type role. Actually, it suits Martinelli. He's a, he's a natural in that position. And I think that's helping them because they Arteta's system, he, when he came in, he was trying to put the players in a position. You know, he came from Man City, he had these ideas about what he wanted to do. He was then confronted with his Arsenal squad that had been failing for a number of years. And he was trying to put pieces in the right place. Um, and actually, Martinelli, through a couple of years of working clearly in and around the first team, and I know he's had time away with injury, so it's not all been development, but but he's clearly getting to the stage now where he's ready to kick on and he understands that role and he looks dangerous. And I think Gerard's right to point out Lacazette's role in that. I still think Arsenal can get an upgrade on Lacazette because they can go and get a player who can do what he does in terms of like drag defenders away. I mean, the Leeds game is a bit of a difficult one because it was so easy for him. I mean, Lacazette, to my mind, got four assists because he just kept dropping back to left back, taking Robin Cock with him. And then, oh, hang on, Leeds got no defenders. I mean, Anyway, we'll get on to that. Over the weekend, we've spoken already, haven't we, at length about how enjoyable the football was. And it's good to watch Arsenal again. It hasn't been the case for a number of years. And yeah, let's enjoy that. And let's enjoy the young players coming through, learning their trade. And let's get excited about what the future might hold. Yeah. And it is, of course, good for the Premier League. Um, Gerard, Graham Souness said on Saturday Night Football that Arsenal won't have an easier away game all year. Ben just mentioned Leeds there, even allowing for injuries. You, you probably wouldn't associate Leeds at Ellen Road with being an easy game, but they look like they're just absolutely plummeting. They've conceded 14 goals in their last three games, won just one of their last eight league games. Why isn't Bielsa Ball working? I think it's... You need that sort of cohesive unit changing you know, changing the, the players and the personnel, obviously due to injury and COVID, as we we, we must caveat everything, isn't helping. And I've, I've always, I always had an, my, my fear for Leeds last season going into this season was that who do you sign that can sign up to that style of play? Because it's, it's, uh, it's not easy to play that way. 
as a player because you have to you have to give up quite a lot as well as pushing yourself to to, to crazy limits and it just hasn't happened for them this season. I'm surprised because they've had the fans in as well actually and, and I thought that that might help them give that extra yard and but it's just not working and you know we have this we have this debate about Bielsa all the time. I really feel in the Premier League you need to be amenable with with your opposition. I don't think you can just play one way. Uh, uh, he might he might tweak it here and there for the opposition, but just not enough. Arsenal come to Ellen Road on brilliant form and Leeds try to go toe to toe with them. You you won't even see the you, you won't even see the champions do that. You won't see teams at the very top do that. They will always they'll always adapt their game to the opposition and. It's unapologetic. Yes, it's gotten to where they are, but but it's getting to the point now where you, you, you need to you need to play the game a bit more. Then, on the other hand, is there something to be said for sticking to his principles with Bielsa? Yes, um, the challenges, the injuries. I really think that. I mean, Gerald's right about bringing players into that system. The players know the system that are there, but you know you've been missing big players for a big chunk of the season. Look, Rafinha's been the standout. He's such a quality player. Um, slight positivity. Again, I used to live in Leeds, so again, my Twitter timeline fills up with Leeds fans, of course. Um, slight positivity will be, and it's a fair point, look at the games they've lost this year. Man United, Liverpool, West Ham. Southampton's probably the anomaly here, but then it's Arsenal, Tottenham, Chelsea, Man City and Arsenal again. So in terms of those matches it's games and teams that are at the top of the table you know the top three four five six whatever like the ones you know the, the teams they've beaten Palace Norwich Watford they're teams around them if they're going to stay up really they're the teams to beat so that's one encouraging thing is that their system does work against the teams around them those points will be crucial but then again Gerard's right. In the Premier League, it's a bit naive to go into all the big games against all the big teams, just try and do the same thing and just get thumped. I mean, the City game was, you know, if ever there was master against apprentice, but I mean, it was, yeah, Guardiola would have very much enjoyed that because he must have known what was coming from Bielsa. He's studied him, he knows him very well, he knows his system, he knew he was going to just be able to rip the shreds and they did. And Leeds are crying out for some of their players to come back because you can't even solve this in January because, again, it's a valid point about recruitment. You can't just bring players in that are going to um, fit that system. Players that have been doing this murder ball in training for the last kind of, I don't know, two, three years, the ones he will need to rely on. He needs people like Bamford fit. He needs players that understand the system. Calvin Phillips, the likes of those players, that can they can take the weight of two because they know the system and they're good enough quality. As I say, the encouragement is... They're beating the teams around them. So, you know, the trip to Liverpool looks horrible, absolutely horrible. Again, that could be a cricket score. But then, you know, home games against Villa and Burnley, if they get something out of one of those, maybe. And then you're looking at West Ham away in the Premier League, Newcastle at home, Villa away again, Everton away. You know, suddenly there's a few games there where if they get some points and they just, as long as they keep that buffer above the, the bottom three, which may become a bottom two, depending on what Newcastle do and whether they've got enough about them to come on strong in the second half of the season. But anyway, like that, if they can keep that little buffer of points they've got at the moment, they will just about get over the line. 
But it was interesting to hear from Victor Orta about the fact that they were obviously planning for when Bielsa does eventually leave. They need a coach to come in. They want someone in a similar style, but they need a coach to come in who's going to be able to take what he's done over the last few years and build on it. Maybe add that element of flexibility in some of those games, because that is a clear area where Leeds can improve. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you say, they are in in the relegation conversation now, but Bielsa himself says he isn't immune from the sack. So Leeds not looking too good heading into Christmas. Arsenal, though, into the top four. That game was the only to go ahead on Saturday after the day's other five fixtures were all postponed. Some of those are very late notice. Um, Gerard, we know a special Premier League shareholders meeting is due to take place on Monday afternoon to discuss the impact of COVID on football. Premier League managers and captains also due to hold separate meetings. Is a circuit breaker needed? And if so, do you think it will actually work? I I, I think at the moment, if you can get a game on, you've got to get it on. Um, I don't see the benefit in calling a blanket disruption and a blanket break. Um, I think this would have been, well, you'd, you'd have hoped at the start of the season, this might have been factored in and rules might be in place, but seemingly not because uh, we still don't know what it takes to have an actual game called off. We don't know the numbers. And we also know that the clubs don't know that either because all the managers are coming out and asking, what does it take? How many players is it? Um, but I don't think a circuit break would actually work, particularly not at this time. I mean, the crescendo here is is quite incredible just before Christmas just before Boxing Day, any of I think any other time of the year then we might have seen one. But if you if you if you put in a circuit break now, players and 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 of staff are obviously going to mix at Christmas. Uh, we might be in exactly the same situation in two weeks' time. So I think while you can get games on, if that's four out of ten over weekend or three out of ten or two out of ten, whatever, I think they should get games on and, and just try and minimise that impact impact later on in the season. I think at this point, cancelling games that don't need to be cancelled, I'm not sure that's that's the way to go. I think they should be buying themselves some some breathing space there. But it's an, I don't know. If there's a right or wrong answer, a right answer to any of this. It, you know, it's still it's still quite new territory for us. As I said, you'd hope that rules would be in place. And interested to what what comes out of the uh, the Monday meeting. But yeah, I. I think it's important that we we try and get as much on as we can at, at this point, and hopefully, let's hopefully we 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 see cases decrease and um, and uh, you can get players into their bubbles, maybe perhaps. Um, but I can't see the Premier League doing anything without the government doing anything because the Premier League have always fallen back on that, uh, and, and probably rightly fallen back on what the government rules are at that time. So so I can't see a circuit break at this time. Okay, well, one of those managers calling for more clarity was Mikel Arteta after Arsenal's win. He's not the first to call on the Premier League for a clearer steer. I mean, you know, Thomas Tuchel wasn't very happy that Chelsea's game did have to go ahead when others didn't. Currently, the decision to postpone games is made on a game-by-game basis by the Premier League board. I mean, we saw Villa's game at home to Burnley cancelled about two hours before kickoff. Fans will have been on their way to the game. Of course, health and safety is the, you know, the most important thing in all of this. But is that the right way to go, Ben? Or, or would a one rule for all approach maybe be fairer at this point? It's hard because I think there's a lot of nuance and a lot of politics being played here. Um, all of the managers are coming out, or those ones you mentioned, coming out saying they don't know the rules or the situation or a clear picture. Well, someone at the club does. And I find it impossible to believe that the managers have not been on the phone to their chief exec and been told, 
what the situation is and how many positive tests or injured players or unavailable players it would take for the game to be postponed like that. That doesn't ring true with me, knowing what the, the little I do know about how much Premier League managers know about what's going on behind the scenes in their club. Now, the Premier League rules state that if 14 players are fit, the game has to go ahead on that basis. So there is a number, and it's the number the EFL have publicly come out with and said. Now, the kind of grey area, I suppose, is what constitutes those 14 players being fit and who are they? You know, do they... Do they have to be from that 25-man Premier League squad? Can they be supplemented by academy players or under 23 players? Is that safe? Is that right? Because that's the other mitigating factor in it, is the ability to field a team. It's then the status and the severity of a potential COVID outbreak. So the challenge they're having in the Premier League is that they want to run by the rules that are in the handbook and the rules they've kind of, I would imagine, have reminded to the players and clubs. Um but, of course, it's an ever-changing picture, which is why we're getting these late positive tests a few hours before kickoff, which may take some teams, I assume it is, because all we've got is assumption, because no one's been quite clear. It must take some teams just above that threshold of number of players. Now, you know, obviously, as you know, I've spent the last week or so stood outside Manchester United talking about their games being postponed. And I know that they had nine fit players for the game against Brentford, which was postponed. That falls below the threshold. That was then reduced to seven for the game that should have been taking place on Saturday lunchtime against Brighton. So clearly, Manchester United there do not have enough first-team players available to fulfil those fixtures. And then there's an, another factor in terms of the ability of the players to prepare for the game. So when a, a team, for example, closes their training ground, they lose 24 hours, 40 hours of preparation time. It then becomes, again, about a safety issue and a, a genuine competition and fairness issue if they're having to have deep cleans and all that kind of thing. So I think the clubs do know what's going on. I think maybe, hopefully, in this meeting, I know we're recording before the meeting, so it's hard to talk about the picture with any degree of absolute certainty. But I would imagine the meeting, they'll be reminded of the rules that are in the handbook. They will then have their opportunity to have their say. And then hopefully it'll be a lot clearer. And I just wish really the clubs would come out themselves and be a bit more open about the number of players they're concerned about. The fact that maybe, you know, for the supporters who have to make these long journeys and then get games called off a couple of hours before, it's not because suddenly there's a massive snowstorm or the pitch is flooded. It's they they must know that, for example, they've got they're up on the they're on the borderline. They're close to the game being postponed. They've got they're waiting for PCR test results that may come the following day. It's that information that clubs have to find a better way of communicating because that's not fair on the fans. But largely, I do um, admire and applaud the clubs that have got games on and the Premier League's approach of, look, we have to try and get games on because I, get, I hate, I keep doing this. Gerald's made a good point again. <laughs> very festive. Um, overly so. Um, is that it's easier down the line to fit in odd fixtures here and there than fit in complete rounds of fixtures because suddenly you're not tied to is a club in Europe, who's in Europe, who's still in the Cups, whatever. Suddenly, three weeks will appear for the odd team Whereas when you're trying to fit a whole round of fixtures in, that's much more difficult. 100%. And let's hope as many games as possible do and can go ahead safely. As you know, Christmas is football, isn't it, Gerard? Have you got any time off or are you just going to be taking it all in? Time off? Maybe <laughs> um, time no, for us journalists. Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, of course. And then Boxing Day is, is you know, touch wood. A big day of football. But no, I'm cooking the Christmas dinner this year. Um, and I'm trying a new a new recipe 
for dessert, which is a panettone bread and butter pudding. Oh, that um, sounds amazing. With chocolate and marmalade. So that's going to be really interesting to see how that goes down with my family and my uh, two little nieces, uh, see if they enjoy that. So I'm really looking forward to it. And yeah, as I say, hopefully we get a bit of, uh, we get a bit of football on Boxing Day as well. Oh, that sounds brilliant. Enjoy, Gerard. Ben, what have you got planned? Well, not marmalade. Um, there's a reason why. <laughs> the reason I say that, though, is that I used to like marmalade. And then my mum, bless her, made my favourite cake, Victoria Sponge. She made me one of those. Um, and she said, oh, I've made you this. Have a big chunk of this Victoria Sponge. Took it home. Um, this was only a few weeks ago. So I sat there. I live in the Peak District. So, this, you know, it's all about tea and cake up here. So cup of tea, <laughs> slice of cake. Had a massive bite of it. She put in... Not jam to go with the buttercream. No, marmalade. And not uh, just marmalade. My dad's really thick, tangy, like, oh, my good, bitter marmalade. And I was just like, oh. So the idea of a marmalade dessert has put me off. I'm Paddington Bear, I am not. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, apart from that, I'm, not, I'm just hoping we get to celebrate a little bit of Christmas. It'll be nice that we've all had a tough year. So whether that means we can see family for a day or two, that'll be nice. A few glasses of red wine and then, yeah, back to it because obviously, well, let's hope the football doesn't stop and it's a really important year, part of the year, isn't it? Absolutely. So controversial from Mama Ransom. But guys... Oh, it was an accident. <laughs> Hang on, it was an accident. Did I not make that clear? Like, it was, Oh, no, OK, that's a she different... Just got the wrong, she got the wrong jar out, slavered it all over. <laughs> um, so I said to her, so obviously I told her, so like, honestly, every time I bite into a cake now, I'm kind of, it's almost like that jeopardy, you know, when you have like other, you know, chili shots or something, one person gets the, the dodgy shot. It was more well, something like that. And yeah, Victoria Sponge may not ever taste quite the same. I bet not, but enjoy the wine, enjoy the cake, enjoy everything about Christmas. Hopefully enjoy the football. Gerard, Ben, have a brilliant Christmas, a very happy new year. That's all for today's episode of The Essential football podcast don't forget you can subscribe just search for us on any of the usual providers and hit subscribe but for now from us thanks as ever for your company have an amazing christmas and a happy new year to you If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Sky News Daily Podcast with me, Dermot Murnahan. Now, now, a dozen of our correspondents are joining me over the next three episodes to discuss some of the, the biggest stories and issues of the last year and what a year it has been in 2021. Now, over the next half an hour, we're going to be discussing themes surrounding COVID, violence against women and sport. And... Uh, Joining me, uh, my panel on this podcast, uh, in the studio with me, our political editor, Beth Rigmi, our Sky correspondent, Ashna Hurinag, and joining us remotely, our economics and data editor, Ed Conway. Our special correspondent, Alex Crawford, and health correspondent, Ashish Joshi. Uh, good to talk to you all. Got a lot to get through, so let's get on with that. First, the, the story, of course, that has dominated uh, our lives in the UK and, indeed, the entire world. We know what it is.
The government is once again instructing you to stay at home. This is similar to the lockdown of March last year. The number of deaths recorded from COVID in the UK has surpassed 100,000. We had to have a funeral with three coffins in the same church on the same day because we couldn't face going through it three times. It's going to take this country and the whole world a long time to recover from this extraordinary economic situation. Obviously, it's been such a long time and I just want to get on the dance floor. The early indications we have of this variant is that it may be more transmissible than the Delta variant. OK, well, uh, let's go back to the beginning of the year with uh, you, Ashish, first. And, of course, in the UK, an instant lockdown, more or less. Schools went back, I think it was, for a day and then plunged back into lockdown. The disruption to education, Derma, the upheaval for all of these young people who were expecting to go back to school, were told to stay at home, this cloud hanging over their exam results and what would happen, the uncertainty, and that lasted all the way into the early spring. But certainly, at the same time, we had the first movings of this incredible machinery of the NHS and the army and the doctors and primary care and volunteers all coming together to try and set up these amazing, incredible vaccination hubs. Those are the images which are going to be seared into my memory, certainly, at the beginning of the year. And then, Alex Crawford, the variants. Delta originating or certainly identified, first of all, in India. And uh, you reported very graphically on the effect it had and the shivers it sent down the spine and still is of the world. Well, weirdly, Dermot, actually, when we arrived in India, they were very much calling it the British variant, the UK variant. The, uh, they were, they were still, it was still very early days and they were very reluctant to say that it was something that had originated or mutated in India. And we arrived uh, a couple of weeks before it actually peaked in the middle of April. Uh, and uh, within an hour of us arriving in India, we were sort of face-to-face, slap-bang, in front of the world's worst nightmare of what happens in the middle of a pandemic where the, the infrastructure cannot cope. Within an hour, we were, we were witnessing... Uh, at least half a dozen people dying in front of us on pavements without oxygen, without doctors, uh, families crying and weeping and wailing. Uh, it was uh, an absolute meltdown and it was the apocalyptic version, really was the apocalyptic version of what happens in the midst, in the eye of a storm when the country can't cope. They have made loads of, um, of mistakes, you could argue, because they had a very severe lockdown, like much of the rest of the world, uh, earlier, and they'd emerged out of it and thought that they had beaten it. That was the, that was the, the big... <laughs> we, we can't imagine it now, but back then, back in January and February, uh, the Prime Minister of India was boasting that they were in the end game of coronavirus. Yeah, indeed. Ashton, I want to get away from uh, the data and the big picture and some of the human stories that, of course, you reported on over the year and, you know, talking about vaccines there, people perhaps who, who haven't been vaccinated and then the, the awful effects of that. 
Yeah, we are still seeing a huge amount of people who um, don't want to take the COVID-19 vaccine for whatever reason. There have been a huge amount of reporting done on the myths um, around some of the fears, people playing on that mistrust that some people have. And it is a multi-generational thing often, but you do have mistrust in some communities and therefore they're fearful of this vaccine. When you look at the bigger picture, it is so clear that the vaccine is our way out in many respects. It can save so many lives. But what you, there is no doubt that the nation is going through this, and the world, this collective sense of mourning, this grief. Um, and it's hard, I think, to find somebody who hasn't been impacted by the pandemic in, in some form. You talked to some families, didn't you? I mean, they'd have really been I mean, cut apart by it. Destroyed by it. And also families that we've, we've spoken to who chose not to get the vaccine and have then gone on to, to die from COVID-19. So people in that scenario, speaking to them has been so eye-opening because obviously they're having this moment of real reflection now and it's taken the loss of a loved one for them to go out and get their vaccine. And you're seeing a lot of these stories where people are saying, we didn't want to take it, we chose not to take it and please go out and do so because look at what it's done to our family. Um, and yet still, you, you do have a lot of people who are still hesitant. I spoke to a number of pregnant women only yesterday who don't want to take the COVID-19 vaccine and it's going to take a lot of work to win those people over. Beth, talk to me about the politics of it all and let's look at it from the, the start of the year. We've got a Prime Minister, he was reluctant to lock down again mm. in January. He was reluctant to stop flights from India as Delta started to spread. And he was very eager uh, to have the grand reopening Freedom Day in England on July the 19th. But yet, as we reach the end of the year, still many questions about what happens next in terms of restrictions. Absolutely, Dom. I was actually uh, looking back on this year and it's so odd in that none of us can really imagine living without COVID. And so much has happened in this year. I can't keep up with it myself and actually I went back to March the 23rd that was the year anniversary of the first lockdown and I said to the Prime Minister at that press conference what's your reflection about what's passed and what's to come and he said we'll be dealing with Covid certainly in my case for years to come he called it an extraordinary moment in our history a deeply difficult and distressing period then you're right we had the route map out of lockdown that began in the winter last year or this year sorry and it's run through and you're right freedom day as it was called july the 19th it was postponed from june the 21st as they had to deal with the delta variant and as we chance upon christmas again this year, the government with a new dilemma of a new variant. And, uh, Ed, of course, uh, we can't ignore the economic aspects of uh, all, the, all the lockdowns. The furlough scheme uh, this time a year ago was still fully in operation. Um, that's gone. Um, all, uh, many of the other mitigations have gone as well. And, of course, the huge amounts of public money that have been spent on trying to deal with it. Uh, what effect has that had uh, overall on the economic outlook? Yeah, I mean, like, the weird thing about last year is, in economic terms, because of the furlough scheme, because the entire economy was kind of put into hibernation, the kind of economic story in terms of unexpected news things, apart from just how scary those numbers were, was actually not quite as big as, as, as you might have expected. This past year, it has been really big, just because we've started to see the economies reopen again. You've seen the massive economic bounce. 
And at the same time, we're seeing all sorts of weird things happen with, you know, around the global economy, stuff that no economists uh, had expected. You know, supply chains basically not functioning, people running out of semiconductors, car companies having to shut down production because they don't have enough, inflation rising to an extraordinary high, gas prices going up to the highest level they've basically ever been. And you're in this new new but weirdly familiar world where we're talking about whether we're back in the 1970s. What's going to be interesting in the next year is, first of all, what happens, obviously, with the variants and and whatever restrictions remain in place uh, at the start of the year. But secondly, do central banks like the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve need to start raising interest rates over this period? And does that in turn bring them into conflict uh, with governments? And do we start to see that difficult dynamic all over again? I, I say difficult for me as a as an economics reporter, I think it would be fascinating. But, but blimey, this is, this is stuff which um, is quite unfamiliar to a lot of people. Inflation, growth like that. We haven't seen that for a long time. OK, so so much to watch out for in the next year. So many dimensions involving COVID. Uh, Ed, Alex, Ashish, thank you very much indeed for the time being. Uh, and now we move on to one of the stories that uh, shocked the entire nation in 2021. Serving police constable has tonight been charged with the kidnap and murder of Sarah Everard. Save Sarah's kidnap, rape and murder was one of the most dreadful events in the 190-year history of the Metropolitan Police Service. Let's pray every day and work every day to make sure nobody's name ends up on this list again. Ashton, let me ask you a personal question about uh, Sarah Everard, the, the atrocity, the murder. Um, you know, I've got daughters your age, and I know that, you know, how deeply it affected them. It affected us all, of course, but, you know, they now really think very hard about walking home, about who knows where they're going, all kinds of things. I, I, you know, I know that they've been, they've been in women's and young girls' minds for for many times, but this really brought it home, didn't it? Yeah, it did, and it also was a moment where everybody realised that these were conversations and daily thoughts that women and girls have. You know, where are you going at night, telling friends to to be aware of your location, carrying your keys in your hand just before you get home and making sure it's, you know, you don't have a, a lot of time on your own outside your front door, just getting in as quickly as possible, sharing your taxi journey with your friends. It's it's consistently, it's quite hard work, actually, isn't it, when you think about it? But it's the daily occurrences. People are genuinely so affected by what they've seen this year. And we have seen this cascading amount of anger, frustration, huge amount of emotion behind what we've seen this year, fueling the conversation around violence against women and girls. And it has been a really bleak fight to try and get movement on this this year. But we have seen a lot of movement. But, of course, it all started back um, with Sarah Everard being brutally murdered in the way that she was. All of those details began to paint the most horrific, horrific um, image and also story. And now, whenever you walk past the bandstand at Clapham Common, which, of course, became a bit of a symbol in in itself, didn't it? You can't help but think about about her. You, You really can't. And, uh, I mean, it threw up so many big questions for, for the government as well. The complexity around it is how do you actually begin to try and tackle something that is clearly so deep-seated in society. And so some of the work we have done as a channel over the past mm. year is, of course, report 
this case, ask questions of the Met and also begin to ask about what government can do, but also culturally uh, what needs to change that, in society. That's the really interesting thing you raised there, because I think it was an eye-opener, you know, from, from, from the male side of the equation, you know, the... You know, particularly when we had, didn't we, we had the, that schoolgirl campaign, just pointing out how routine sexual harassment mm. was throughout their school careers, and much worse, of, of course. Last time I checked the femicide census, 129 women have been killed by men in the UK since the beginning of this year. So it pulls up, I guess, the importance and the... The, the, the touch, I think you, you called the it touch, a touch... The paper. touch paper. The touch paper. I mean, I'd say a couple of things about this. The first one is, in the panel we did with MPs about violence against women and girls, some of the things that they want to change culturally and in terms of legislation, Jess Phillips, who, of course, campaigns so prominently and effectively against domestic violence and violence against women and girls, you know, the thing that struck me in that conversation she, we had was she said, the thing is everyone knows a victim... That means everyone knows a perpetrator and that is the conversation that we're not having at the moment as a society. And that's about the cultural change that we need to perhaps begin to bring in and discuss. And then the second thing is just in terms of, of course, government can't fix every problem and particularly societal problems. But there is calls about what they can actually do in terms of strengthening legislation, in terms of making it a police priority to deal with sexual harassment. Do they make harassment of women and girls in the street a crime uh, so it becomes less acceptable? Do they, in the online harms bill that's going to come into Parliament next year, begin to make things like cyber flashing when people send unsolicited uh, pictures unwanted to teenage girls and, and women, do they make that a crime? So I think that there will be a body of work in the next year about what they can do as a government, what MPs can do to try and put a structure around this more substantively, but ultimately, Dermot, it is a cultural change yeah. as well about what is permissible and what is not permissible. And, and maybe it does start with harassment of women and girls in the streets. OK, well said. Uh, Beth, Ashna, thank you both very much indeed. Well, coming up next on the podcast, we look at the sporting controversies of 2021. Well, joining me for this part of the podcast is Sky Sports correspondent Tom Parmenter. But before we talk to Tom, let's uh, listen first to some of this year's sporting moments. I know that the pain that I went through for the next few months, no one could ever, ever put me through that pain again. It's an absolute disgrace. And honestly, we have to wrestle back the power in this country from the clubs at the top of this league. Watching England play is normally a burden of suffering and tonight it was no exception. It means so much to me to be here with the trophy. It was always a dream to win a Grand Slam. Plenty to discuss then. Uh, Tom, let's start, though, with Yorkshire County Cricket Club and, you know, one of the titans of English County cricket embroiled in this racism row. Well, Dermot, I think this was the year that cricket reset and had to have a good, hard look at itself. And it's, I think, revolutionised cricket in Yorkshire, given the testimony that Azim Rafiq, their former player, put forward to MPs 
in Westminster in November. It was a searing account that stopped people in their tracks within the game of cricket and far beyond it. Just the appalling catalogue of racism that Azim Rafiq suffered through his career and largely kept quiet about a lot of the time. But um, I think it was Yorkshire's inability to handle that allegation of racism. And in a report, they tried to put the context forward of the P word for being used, for example, as friendly banter. And that was the point at which people stood up, notable politicians included, and said, no, it is not friendly banter. And it prompted a clean sweep of people leaving Headingley in disgrace at the um, zenith of this racism scandal, the, the likes of which cricket has never seen before. And I think Dermot, it was one of those that cut through to dinner tables across the country and forced people to have some very hard conversations. And let's talk about football now then, Tom. And Euro 2020, of course, great to see it back and crowds back and great to see many of the big games, including the final, of course, in England at Wembley and England in that final. But then the other side of it, the experience in the final, the, the thugs that, that broke in, and then the three missed penalties by those young black England players and the abuse they suffered. It was England's path to the final that stood out as just an extraordinary run that Gareth Southgate uh, got them on. And Southgate has managed to do something quite spectacular, really, in as much as they're a team that the nation of England can now be proud of, not just for the way they play football and the fact that they're contenders, but also the way they conduct themselves as a group of people off the pitch. And, yeah, there were some great moments, wasn't there? But, as you say, what made it different was the very... Marked markedly different atmosphere outside the stadium for that final. Around 2,000 people broke into the stadium. They pushed through 17 entrances to get in without tickets, creating a really dangerous situation, but also one that I think did mar the occasion, certainly. And afterwards, as you say, three high-profile black footballers missing penalties led to a a really ugly spectacle on social media of abuse. But I think what we should also remember is what happened in South Manchester at the Marcus Rashford mural in the days that followed. The, Of course, there was a lot of hate around that final that came out in so many different ways. But the love that we saw at that mural and at other clubs as well, um, as those players have got back to life in the Premier League, well, a lot of hate, but a lot of love as well. Indeed. And what a year it was, Tom, for the Super League. <laughs> the Super League that didn't really get going, did it? No. They didn't consult the fans. And they thought, I think, the clubs, that they had strength in numbers because they'd all signed up to this. But actually, what it prompted... And I remember being outside Anfield, Liverpool's ground, when the fans were putting up banners on the gates behind the cop saying, RIP, Liverpool Football Club. And you think... This is a huge fight back from the fans. They were galvanised to the point where they really mobilised and, and took action and made their point very forcefully indeed. And now tell me this, this time a year ago, you've got to be honest, even the, you know, the sports expert you are, had you ever heard of Emma Raducanu? We all have now, but I mean, boy, she just burst onto the scene originally at Wimbledon and now she's a Grand Slam champion. It was the standout story from nowhere in 2021 and Emma Raducanu I think I like everyone else did Google <laughs> Emma Raducanu she was one of the most googled names during this year 
And what a story it was. She, of course, put in a really strong performance in Wimbledon and then pulled away um, from the competition. She wasn't quite right. And then just seemed to waltz into New York. No great expectations and just made it look so, so easy. And she's such a composed young woman who just kind of blitzed the opposition in a way that I don't think really has ever been done before. You have so many people within tennis saying that this is so hard to do and she's making it look so easy. Tom, thank you very much indeed. And uh, just let me remind you before we end this uh, podcast that uh, these podcasts are available on demand wherever you normally get your podcasts from. Uh, On the next podcast, we'll be discussing global security, the migrant crisis and the year's big political stories. Uh, this edition, let me tell you, was produced by Annie Joyce along with Felix Forbes and directed by Kevin Donaldson. Thanks for listening. episode please leave us a review on itunes Welcome to Snow Talk, the podcast series that brings you in-depth interviews for an insider's look at what makes our industry work. We will be speaking with snow industry professionals about life, about business and leadership in this often challenging and always satisfying industry. This episode of Snow Talk is brought to you by Fisher Engineering. And now, enjoy Snow Talk, sponsored by Fisher. So tell me a little bit about your company, HLM Property Services. All right. So long story short, I guess we uh, probably, I guess it was 2016, made a conscious decision to kind of branch out on my own after basically almost 30 years in the business with a very prominent local company, just through second generation and whatnot. It just felt like it was the time for me to take my, I felt like my values were kind of going in a different direction. And per se, maybe what the original definitely was aligned with the original ownership. Uh, he was a profound mentor in my life. It just felt second generation coming along that it was going to be different. And I wanted to do different things. And there was a different client base I wanted to target and really wanted to institute some more like hometown values kind of thing. It wasn't about being massive. It wasn't about, I mean, the company I was with was prominent. We were huge. And dominant in our market. But there were so many projects and so many people we couldn't help because we're just, frankly, just too overhead heavy. You know, it wasn't cost effective for us to go into this project or whatever. So I felt with a smaller group, kind of more of a a hometown feel, kind of a mom and pop feel that we could target some of that and we could really make a difference in a lot of people's lives. And uh, that's kind of what we 
did and where we went. That's a really cool abbreviated story. Tell me about some of the challenges that you experienced or some of the lessons that you've learned in the last four and a half to, to five years doing that. Well, I can tell you that my lessons came from it was in the transition was going from walking in and had, you know, being a team of eight to 10 managers and half of a hundred and 30 some trucks walking in and you've got one truck on the side of a barn and you're kind of starting over with 30 years experience kind of thing. So a good mentor of mine said, kind of chuckled at me. He said, well, you're not a startup because you've got 30 years experience in the industry. So you know what you're doing. And the work isn't going to be the issue. Just make sure you get your systems in place and get your processes dialed in. You know, don't kind of veer from that. But I would think, you know, the biggest challenge was to be very candid. It was that interaction. So like I was walking into an operating, you know, an operations room and there's 15 foremen standing there and crew leaders and operations managers and production managers who just being you, man. I mean, you're by yourself. There was a defining moment in my kind of personality and kind of my life of which went off like, holy crap, like I'm alone. So I learned so much from 27 years where I was at that I fell back on a lot of those lessons. I fell back on diving into education, diving into mentorship and peer groups and building a network of people I could talk to. When you're in those kinds of positions, the dirty part of our industry that nobody wants to talk about is the non-competes and the non-solicitation agreements. And they want to throw the legal jargon out there at everybody. And, and, you know, my opinion on that stuff is just whatever. So when you dread going to your mailbox because you're going to have certified letters and legal docs, it's a very humbling and very lonely experience. But when you build that network and you, you know, you found back on those, those principles that you were founded on, you start to rebuild. And sure, there was a moment where, like I said, it was kind of like, definitely was lonely. There was some solitude. And what I realized more than anything, and I know we're going to talk about it down the road about the fitness, is that you're way stronger than you think, man. And other people don't dictate that to you. It felt like in the past, I held on to a lot of things. So it made me do a lot of reflecting. It made me build a lot of self-esteem because uh, I definitely thought I was a confident guy. But I... I was humbled, man. When friends turn their back on you and don't want to talk to you, I learned the lessons that I had and the experiences I had, and I started rebuilding. And we're growing like crazy, and we put a foundation in place. And we joke all the time. Like I guess my line used to be, "I go, I came from, I went from ten million to ten bucks." You know, it's kind of our our tagline. But we're on the right road. I love the fact that we're building our culture. A good friend of mine put it to me. He said, he goes, you're going to learn about a thing called entrepreneurial depression. And he goes, sometimes you're going to feel like you don't have somebody to talk to, like the buck stops with you. And you got to build that mentorship group, man. You got to have those friends that you can talk to and you can relate with. And I mean, I think we all know, I think my time on the board with Simon, I mean, I learned profoundly from just osmosis sitting in a room with some very impressive people. But those relationships, on forever i can tell you how many times i've texted a, you know a, a, i've met through time or that was on the board or whatever and whether they send you a thing of encouragement or frankly they just like and comment on a facebook post or something like that just to build you up servant leadership seems to guide 
a lot of your vision for your company. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to leading your team and where you draw that inspiration from? You mentioned Gary Vee, a few others, your business coach, but can you elaborate? Yeah, we um, used to get called that. I guess I'll put it in perspective. So like I grew up in a family business, spending my summers in the East Coast with my grandfather's business. And it always kept the feel of mom and pop. But my grandfather would do everything. So he'd be in the, you know, I would be in the shop at night helping him sweep up and clean up. They did, you know, some high-end upholstery and carpentry kind of stuff for the resorts. And I just remember him, like, he'd be the one out there washing the trucks. He'd be the one, like, like he never would make his employees do something he didn't want to do. And then I'll be candid. He also had these other guys that I was like, you know, as a young kid, I questioned why that this guy isn't family. Why is he work here? So I started realizing what he was doing. And we'll get to that part down the road. But he embodied everything he wanted his employees to stand for. So we hear these cliches all the time, you know, don't have the staff do something you wouldn't do yourself. But how many owners actually do that? How many owners actually get it? Like me, I love plowing. When I was a young guy, I didn't. So I tackled it and went in, got my CSP and attacked it, learned everything I could about it. But I love being on the walkthrough. I hear all these guys talk, I can't get guys to do walks or I can't do this or whatever. Well, with all due respect, maybe you can't get guys on walks because you're sitting in a loader or a big expensive truck and they're out there for four hours in a snowstorm. And to me, it's not about to some extent about rate of pay either. You know, I think I think there's a lot of guys that pay very well. So I think it's the environment we work in. And I think, you know, I know there's some guys, you know, in certain companies, I mean, they prepare meals for them and they have bedding for them and they have stuff to prepare. Like they show them that they care. You know, we have a, you know, a little tagline here that says, you know, passion and purpose before profits. So it's more about taking care of the individual than it is the bottom line. And, you know, where I came from, that was not the issue. It was hit the net. And I got challenged one time that said I would basically, I would take the, I would take care of the employee over the betterment of the company. And I said, well, yes, I would, because if I take care of the employee, the the raving fan employee is going to take care of the company. You know, it's a law of reciprocity and they didn't, I don't, I don't think a lot of guys fully get that. You know, I had a, an experience with an associate or an organization where the employees felt like they were cogs, like they were nothing but a means to an end. That's not what it should be. They're human beings. They're husbands, wives, fathers, sons, mothers, whatever. So, you have to treat them like humans. You gotta, you gotta help them and make them become the best they could be. You know, and I think if you're able to do that, like for an example here, like part of what we do here at HLM is part of our organization is giving second chances. So we work with reformed felons to help them get back on their feet. We actually have a gentleman here currently who has he's been mentally challenged his whole life, and he has been frankly, taken advantage of on a lot of fronts. He loves it here. We have him in reading class. He's 39 years old. He doesn't know how to read, but he's been taken advantage of his whole life. And to have him sit down and be able to read our mission statement. And what you're saying there is what you're doing for me, impacting the lives of those we touch. You're doing that to me. So it's profound and it's extremely humbling. So I do think, especially in the current state of our world, we need more people making a difference in each other's lives. And we need ownership to come from behind their desk and out of their corner office and be boots on the ground and get back to an industry where we were and help folks 
be the best they can be, whatever that may be. You know, I don't know what that is to everyone, but, and I certainly don't have all the answers, but that's what we do here. I mean, I'm certainly not perfect at it, but you know, one of our, you know, our values is, you know, charitable, humble, and real. I believe in being transparent and I, they see our works, man. We don't put out pretty things and say, oh, here it is, you know. So here I went from being, you know, I'm still Mr. Positivity. I'm always going to look at the sunshine. I'm always going to say what a great day we have. Oh, I don't have to do this. I get to do this, as John Gordon says. So I'm happy that I get that opportunity. So I think if people feel that vibe coming from ownership and leadership, then we're teaching our, you know, our mid-level managers and our frontline employees that I think it makes a difference. I mean, I think if people realize that you care about them and you're not afraid to, in the old days, I used to go jump on a mower, like train a new technician in the landscape side of the business. And I remember my boss coming up to me and he goes, he's like, Ricky, we're losing money every time you're on that mower. I'm like, no, we're not. He's like, what do you mean? I go, I'm teaching that kid how to use this machine. And if he stays with us for 10 or 15 years and he becomes very productive, that's an investment into his future. Mm-hmm. You know? So I think sometimes we, we're such a fast paced society. We just want to go, 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 get them, get them there quick instead of enjoying the ride. And I think part of servant leadership is really being next to them and letting them enjoy the ride with you. And I think if and that kind of stuff matters, that explains that enough. Yeah. What would you say that your biggest strength as a leader is? I think you mentioned a few things right there, but if you could pick one as your leading strength as a leader. They're going to know I love them. They're going to know I'm going to go out of my way to show how much I care for them to the point that I will have. I will sacrifice myself, my stuff for myself for them without a doubt. I actually had a recent conversation about that because you know, with that, sometimes you get some folks that might take advantage of that a little bit and that's okay. But I think it's important know how much you care about them. There's so much hate and so much, what have you done for me lately that people just need to know how much you care about them. And I'm going to tell you what, when they feel that, they will bust through walls for you. I mean, they will, the amount of work they will do and the energy they will bring will blow your mind. So, I mean, I am, I will say it, my empathy and my caring for my team by far is my best leader. Now, a part that you're excited about, tell me about your Purple Snow Warriors. All right, the Purple Warriors. So obviously being in the industry 30 years, I have come to realize that we always, we have a lot of the same colors, man. We got the white trucks, the red trucks, the, you know, the yellow equipment. I mean, there's only so much we can do. So one of my, there's a lot of meaning behind it, but I wanted to brand something different. I was done with the khaki pants and the green shirts or the blue shirts. People should know my brand through me. doesn't matter what shirt I have. So as we were starting this, my daughter was at a college down the road from us, hour and a half, two hours away. And there was a lot of college friends. And I said, listen, I need to do a, a think tank. I said, I'm going to bring a, be candid. All right. College, I'm bringing a 30 pack. I'm bringing some pizza and I'm going to get a bunch of your friends together from sororities and fraternities and just get them together. And we're going to think tank this. We, sat down and we flip charted and we brainstormed and came up with logo and came up with color scheme. And of course, hint, school happens to be black and purple and that, but um, <laughs> I go, it's perfect. I mean, I'm like, so I'm very faith-based. Well, biblically purple is royalty. 
So I'm like my team's royalty. You know, I want them treated like royalty. Very few companies have purple. So I'm like, awesome. And it got to a point that we'd be doing job down the street or whatever. Somebody would come up to us and be like, oh, you're the guys in purple. So it started jumping out. And then I wanted them to know this, how powerful they are. I'm like, you're powerful. You're a warrior. You know, and we build positivity and then we build their self-esteem up. And it's a rallying cry here. I mean, it's nuts. I mean, these dudes are like fist bumping, like we're warriors, baby. I mean, you know, I coach high school athletics. So I see a team that gets formed. It's like on that happens. It's one thing to say, oh, I'm on, you know, I'm on Chris's crew. It's another thing to be like, we're purple warriors, baby. You know, and you got this kind of this little thing, this little mantra going on and this little bravado and you're going to fight for one another and you're going to work your butts off for one another. And it is snowballed better than I ever thought it would. Waiting for somebody else to plow your property? You just aren't wired that way. The Fisher HS Compact Snowplow lets you do the work from the comfort of your own truck or SUV. Made from durable commercial-grade powder-coated steel, it's designed for low-maintenance performance in even the toughest conditions. Clear your property on your schedule. The HS Compact Snowplow from Fisher. Fisher, the legacy rolls on. Visit fisherplows.com to find a dealer near you. It's uh, becoming very clear to me and even just the last 25 minutes of us talking, but your mission is impacting the lives of those that you touch. Tell me about how you achieve this with your team, your customers, and your family. Well, we'll start it backwards. Family will be tough, but I'll make it through. So the impacting lives started 100% because when I was at my former company, uh, our story is true. I was... My oldest daughter was graduating and I was at her commencement and I hugged her and I told her how proud I was of her and she kind of pushed me back that you missed everything. So I thought growing a business and giving my family and my kids what they wanted was success. Not even, not even freaking close. So she hugged me and she said, don't you do this to her younger sister and her younger brother. That's about the time that my values really started changing. There's a line that I use to my players all the time, but it really related to me as a man and as a father. It was show up and be present. It's one thing to show up physically. Mm-hmm. Like I coach high school athletics. I can look at the game and watch mom and dad on their cell phones, not even paying attention when the kid went in the game, right? So I realized show up and be present. So on the customer standpoint, I've kind of touched on the employee side. Like I give these guys a second chance. I bring them in. I go out of my way to try to show them that I care about them. I love them. I empower them. I will never micromanage them. I create a process. I let them evaluate. You know, I want them to evaluate the process. I want them to break it apart, destroy it, build it the way it should be. And I want them to have buy-in. So when they're part of that process and they're part of that, they feel valued and when they feel valued, they do what's necessary, you know, to get the job done. And, and they feel, like I said, they feel a part of it. And that's the whole concept, like with the purple warriors and, uh, you know, we have other taglines and stuff, but it's about being a part of a team and it's going above and beyond, exceedingly above and beyond. So, and I think when people see that and they see that you're, you have a set of core principles that you abide by it's the simplest things that make people feel valued. So, you know, we've put processes in place you know, to make people like customers. And 
I don't ever want our customers to feel like we're bigger than we are. I don't ever want them to feel that they're calling a corporation. I want them to feel like they're calling a mom and pop. I want them to know first names of our office, our frontliners who answer the phone. We do our profiles. We know, you know we're, and then the same concept with your employees. Like, how can you have a, a team member here working 10, 12 hour shifts, but they're missing their daughter's first Christmas? I did. I got stuck in a plow truck and missed my daughter's first Christmas while my two supervisors went home, all right, to be with their families. Now I get to reciprocate that because my kids are a little bit older and they're like, Dad, get those guys home, get those guys home. That matters. If you have an employee that might be a little bit, frankly, tight on cash for whatever reason, and he's kind of bummed about getting his daughter Christmas or something, help out, man. You know, I mean, I think it's those, those things. And I'm going to tell you, like, I think you don't have to be multimillionaire. If people know how much you care and you're doing little things for them to help them and making their lives just a little bit better, you're making a difference. And then if you perpetuate that, you know, threefold, fivefold, because you keep doing it, it's life changing. You've been pretty open about struggling with work-life balance, especially when it comes to the snow piece. What advice would you give to those who are listening about how to find that balance or create it? A story I shared with Brian many years ago was about a, I had one of my key area managers post storm and we were sitting at the shop debriefing and he opens his truck and I clean up his truck, his truck cab, because we all know that they're all impeccably clean after like 12 hours that we're in them. Yeah. So that was, so <laughs> I look over in the passenger side and I see like a six pack of like five hour energies and I see like sweets and all this stuff. And I'm going and I'm looking at this guy and he just looks, he looks awful. And I realized like he loved helping me. He was an, still an awesome friend, but his allegiance to helping me in our business was killing him personally. He's a CDL driver which we ended up later finding out he was a very bad diabetic. So he had to make life-changing things with his body and his health. And that's what kind of brought it all together for me. So I realized that if I die tomorrow, my emails are still going to be there, right? My customer phone calls are still going to have to happen. So I need to put in play what's important. And I don't take my laptop home anymore. I don't bring work home, which is kind of odd in the whole COVID thing we got going on, but I don't want to bring that in. I need separation. I need to keep, oh, I did. I had a backpack, had my laptop, had my notes. I did doing this work all the time. So you talk about showing up and be present. I'm sitting in the living room with my wife and my kids, but I'm on my laptop. I'm not even paying attention to what you're doing. Oh, you just had your first steps? Well, I missed it, you know? So it's just not worth it. Those moments can't be taken back. So like I said, my buddy, my, so here's my buddy as they're trying to work his butt off to help me and I'm killing him. And, you know, we all joke about the war stories. I've been in the truck 18, 24, 36 hours. Okay. We're dumb. That's not what we should be doing. We need to put systems in place that we all know the data. We know when accidents happen, how many hours people are out. We understand that kind of stuff. And, 
You have to put those things in perspective. You have to really have those intimate, open conversations with your team. You need to know that, hey, I got this ski trip lined up with my daughter this weekend, and I know they're calling for a, a little a little snowstorm coming through. I'm like, dude, go. We got it figured out, brother. I mean, you go. That time with your daughter on those slopes is more important than this one snowstorm. And I know it's a lot easier said than done when it's referring about staff and storms and that kind of stuff. But I think we as an organization, we as business owners, we as professionals, we have to bring the human element back into the business and we have to find ways so people can do those things and stay balanced, frankly. You talk about the people in your business. Your wife, Shannon, is instrumental in your business. How satisfying is that to share your work and vision with her? First, make the joke. She hates working with me. Number one, I'm kidding. No, um, it's a balance. It is definitely a balance. I would not be where I am professionally without her. She is the wild card expressive, full of passion, full of love, mama bear type who will keep Rick in check, but also brought Rick out of his shell. The joke always was, she told me, she's like, you'd be a very wealthy, boring man if you never met me. So <laughs> I was like, <laughs> so she brought me out of my shell. She makes me laugh, makes me do some stuff that I would never do. Isn't afraid to ruffle my feathers. Definitely will come at me. Our biggest challenge currently has been turning work off. So that's where the home thing comes in. There's no work at home as much as we try to keep that separate. But she was able to leave her career and, and come aboard our organization. And then, like I said, she was part of us when we, you know, we purchased a second organization. And then we're in the process of another. So it has its moments. But the fact that I get to have lunch with my wife every day or which at this phase when I was at my old place, you know, I'm leaving at six in the morning and getting home at seven at night. And I'm not seeing her all day. And then I see her for a little bit. Her office is right next to mine. She's probably listening. So, no, it definitely has its challenges. But I love how she compliments me with her perspective. Even though a lot of times I don't like her opinion. That's probably why we're such a good team. Last question for you, Rick. Fitness plays a big role in your personal motivation. Has that always been true or what changed for you? Well, I was, once I was a high school athlete, was recruited for college, ended up getting injured. Didn't really do much kind of throughout that, whatever, growing the business kind of thing, that mid-20s, 30s kind of thing. When the 40s came around, what really happened when that transition happened, I basically had faith and fitness to be 100% transparent. I mean, I went from talking, you know, 4,000, 5,000 minutes a month on my phone to nobody. So I didn't know what to do. And so between diving into reading and diving into my faith, I started working out and I was lifting one day and I just, I broke, man. I dropped the dumbbells and sat there and put my head down. And I have never in my life seen this guy in this gym and this huge dude. I mean, I swear to God, he was walking around with like 120 pound dumbbells in his hand, like nothing. His arms were bigger than my legs. And he comes up to me, puts his massive paw on my back. And he's like, brother, we've all been there. He's like, just keep going. Because tomorrow's a new day and you're just going to get through it. And I just got this sense of, sense of peace and energy. And 
you know, I was the soccer kid. I was the kid that could run forever, might've had abs, but had no upper body. It was the <laughs> soccer arms was the joke. So I changed that. And like I said, I work out probably four to five times a week and I've used it, push myself. It kind of ties in with the whole purple order thing that I'm stronger than I ever thought I was. You know, I look up, I, I wanted to be, I made the moment that day. that I will be spiritually, intellectually, emotionally, and physically stronger than I've ever been in my entire life. And you don't know what's within you, man, until you hit adversity. And we're all going to hit it. We all might be having great companies right now and the world's going great for us and our businesses are booming. But someday you're going to get smacked, right? And are you prepared for that? You know, and there's a lot of awesome people that hopefully will listen to this and they'll realize that, you know what, I'm stronger than I think I am and I need to quit being in my shell and I need to step out and I need to find what my calling is, whatever that may be. And I need to live it with passion and I had to go. So, In prep for today's uh, recording, a few staffers were very envious that I was fortunate enough to be the one in the seat to interview you. And uh, you certainly didn't <laughs> disappoint. So on behalf of Saima, our staff, from my perspective, the last hour here, we're super grateful for all that you do. Thank you for sharing your energy, your passion, and your story. And I'm sure this won't be the last time we, uh, we connect. Awesome. I look forward to it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks a lot, Rick. Thanks for joining us for Snow Talk, sponsored by Fisher Engineering. We hope you enjoyed it. Check out the latest episodes of Snow Talk, including any you may have missed, at www.sima.org backslash podcast. be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.